Friends, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for this time of worship that we've had. And um, just as Andrew said, this, this picture of the gospel that we have throughout the service where we can come before you and confess our sins and rejoice in the forgiveness that you offer us through Jesus. And that now, Lord, you would speak to us through your word. So, um, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's do this. Uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And this is the first portion of Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. So this is just one of the things I always wish pastors would have done for me, just so I could sort of stay engaged a little bit and, and knowing parameters. Um, the last few weeks, I've had Tamarick, one of my son's um, time sermons for me, and we're in about the 22-ish minute, up to about 26, 27, and some of you are, don't believe me, like more like 40 minutes, it seemed like. But today, it's going to actually be a little bit longer so stick with me, and if you see my family, like all of them collectively up here in the front row doing this, that doesn't mean kill the preacher, it just means, Tucker, you got to land this plane, okay? So, so stick with me as we, we go through this wonderful psalm, Psalm 51, uh, at least a portion of it today. Next week, we're going we're gonna to hit uh, uh, another section. I don't know if we're going to get through the whole thing, uh, but we shall endeavor towards that. Um, John Calvin once wrote that the psalms are an anatomy of the soul, covering every human emotion, joy, fear, anger, sorrow. And the Psalms are filled with laments, acknowledging trouble. And so you sometimes read, God, where are you? Uh, we could transliterate some of the words of the psalmist. What's happening? I don't understand, God. Or we read things like, fierce men are out to get me. And, and the trouble is oftentimes uh, this feeling that, God, you're absent, where are you? Or it's a response to other people making life miserable. Psalm 51, however, issues its complaint not against God, not against other people who are making life hard for me. Psalm 51 acknowledges that the trouble is right here. It's a lament of the broken heart, the self G.K. Chesterton, he was a, a British theologian, uh, journalist, statesman. He has this wonderful maxim. In 1912, an English newspaper had asked um, people to respond to an essay in the paper, asking readers to respond to this question, what's wrong with the world? 
And Chesterton's response was brilliant. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am yours truly, so on and so forth. I am. It's, it's, it's me. It's here. It's not always out there. It's, it's right in the human heart. And for our passage today, we, we see this introduction to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, and we could even add a little bit more, murdered Bathsheba's husband. That's the context. And the psalmist then presents this problem. What is, what's, what's happening? What's going on that, that I need to go to God and start off with this, have mercy on me, O God? Well, we see three things, my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. And these three things, these three words have maybe lost their strength in the church and more broadly in our culture because maybe they've been overused or inappropriately used to bludgeon other people with their sin. And, and I think conversely, we've also seen a kind of a step away. We don't want to talk about sin. It's too depressing. Um, and we want to talk about things like living your best life now. And let's just be really practical and not, not talk about these hard things like sin. And so these words, iniquity, transgression, sin, can sound kind of antiquated or even quaint. So let's, I wanted to just kind of set the stage. What's going on in David's life? And he uses these words. Well, we know the context. If you remember the story in, in 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14, David sleeps with a woman who is not his wife, murders her husband so to get him out of the way, and then is confronted by the prophet Nathan saying, yeah, you done wrong. And David's response is this psalm. All right, so sin. What is sin? And maybe obvious, but, but let's go through these and, and see what's going on. So sin refers to general moral failure. It's, it's missing the mark. So we just think of like you're shooting a bow and arrow and you have a, a target and it's shooting the arrow like wildly off. That's, that's generally what sin is falling woefully short of the target. It results in ugliness, but it doesn't usually look ugly. And as a matter of fact, in the midst of it, it looks and sometimes feels delicious. And so just think of what this sin could be. It feels good to have hot tea about someone. Do you know what that expression is, hot tea? It's gossip. It feels good to have gossip and spill the tea about a, another person. If we lived in the South, we'd say, yeah, Dale, he was sleeping with his neighbor's wife, and oh, bless his heart, you know, maybe they'll work things out. That's spilling the tea, okay? So that's one example of, of sin. Another is like, oh, cheating on your taxes, right? Well, it feels good because you can think of, well, I, instead of the government, who's going to take my money and do who knows what, I'll do it and I'll, I'll use it for good. I'll use the ring of power for good, right? And I'll do all sorts of wonderful mental, not wonderful, but mental gymnastics to justify that behavior. It's my money after all. Think of the good things I could do for my family and friends. That's sin. Looking at illicit material, Images, it feels good. It gives you that dopamine hit, the rush. But it's a distortion of what God made beautiful, and it removes the person that you're looking at from, from personhood. And so that image is of a real person whom I've made an object for my sexual gratification. 
my selfish gratification. And so we say all sin ultimately affects other people. That's what sin is. All right, transgression. Transgression simply is the violation of a law, rule, code of conduct, an offense. The illegal crossing of a boundary. So we think of, yeah, it's, it's going where you're not supposed to go. My brother was at the, bear with me, Yves Saint Laurent Museum in Paris a few weeks ago. And he said that now museums throughout Paris have these like, um, like uh, uh, lasers that you can't get within like two or three feet of the, the paintings. And so he was being really cheeky and he was like, all right, I'm going to do my Tom Cruise Mission Impossible. Uh, I'm just going to see if I can kind of, you know, weave in. And no, then the, he tries it and he breaks the plane of the laser and then the, the very well-dressed guards come and, and tell him that you have to leave, sir, right? So that's a, that's a transgression. Iniquity. Now, that's an interesting word. It's used far less often biblically than sin or transgression. And iniquity, the the Hebrew word for it is avon, and it means bent, twisted, distorted. And it usually refers to something that's going on inside, inside of the heart. Feelings, thoughts, choices, conscience that are crooked, off-kilter, distorted. And it usually, this word iniquity, avon, refers to something that has become so distorted that it can't be corrected. It can't be made straight. Iniquity, biblically, always points to the consequences of sin and what it does to the person who commits it. And it ultimately points to the reality of our living in a broken world of our own making. And so all of this, as we look at these three words, begs the question, why is it like this, right? We have God's word given to us, and now we're reading Psalm 51, and and okay, so why is it like this? Why is it the world such a way that we have to talk about sin and transgressions and iniquity? This is the type of stuff that, that I think can keep us up at night. Surely there's something going on deeper and more pervasive than me simply making poor choices, right? Just get educated, stop doing it, don't, don't sin anymore. Well, it doesn't seem to work. What's going on? Well, the Bible points to an affliction that emerged in the fall, Genesis 3. Our first ancestors disobeying God and choosing their own path, choosing independence, wanting to be God. And it's that same thing which afflicts us today. There's something wrong with us. There's a distortion. There's a breaking of boundaries that we can't go back. There there is something crooked and bent in us that we can't seem to fix, no matter how hard we try. And it presents itself then as a stain, an internal uncleanness, a crookedness that we can't reach with soap and water or put back into the right shape. Only God can. So what do we do? Well, what does David do in this psalm? We begin with God. This psalm doesn't begin with sin. It begins with a cry to God. Have mercy, O God. And occasionally, I think in Reformed circles, we make the mistake of beginning our theology with human sin. But that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible always starts with God. In the beginning, God. And even then, the next step is not the wickedness of humanity, but rather the goodness, the very goodness 
of humans who are made in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the beginning of our theology. And yet we still acknowledge the trouble, the trouble that's in me and that I'm incapable of fixing. The Bible is always realistic about sin, painfully so. We are, in fact, glorious ruins, made in the image of God, glorious. And yet this beautiful painting gets shattered and distorted and messed up, mixed up. Glorious ruins. We don't forget the glory of being made in God's image or the ruin caused by sin. So my main point as we look at Psalm 51 today and next week is really confession, what's happening in this psalm, is God's gift to us, insisting that we can be changed and restored to glory. And and that he not only has the power to change us, but he actually delights in doing so, making us what he always intended for us to be. Now this change in conformity with God, comes through our submission to and reliance upon him who forgives. So we look to his character. What is God like? What is God like? Some of you may um, think back over your life as a Christian or not a Christian, but you like, there's a God, and what is this God like? When I was a kid, God was eternally, kind of standing like I am right now, eternally disappointed with me. Like, man, when are you going to figure it out, you know? Always kind of ready to, to press the nuclear warhead button of destroy Tucker because this time you screwed up too many times. That, that was, that's the perception of God, right? So, but what is God like? I think some of us maybe make him into an angry taskmaster. Um, I think others simply just project ourselves, kind of what I did, and says, yeah, that's who God is, and, and sort of the eternally displeased parent, maybe. But the psalmist looks to God's loving kind, kindness, his steadfast love, said is the word, and mercy, racham. In biblical Hebrew, the word for mercy, this word racham, shares the exact same three-letter root as the word for womb, which I think is interesting. God's mercy towards humanity denotes the same kind of divine protection that a baby has in the baby's mother's womb. A baby's helpless. God's mercy is his protection and tenderness with which he loves and protects. So we go back to, this is who God is. This is who he is to David, the psalmist. This is who he is to us. We've already spent the time in confession. We look to God and we say, God, you are merciful. You're gracious. You're, you're compassionate. You're, you're tender towards us. I asked permission from Tamarick, one of my boys, if I could tell the story. When he was like four years old, he was just learning to read Actually, he'd been pri- he's been reading since he was one. Sorry, T. That was a, uh, yeah, sorry. He, he was reading this book and these books, age-appropriate books, but I brought home one time a graphic novel called Mouse, M-A-U-S. Y'all ever heard of that one, Mouse? It's a really good book, right? And it's a graphic novel, so a four-year-old kid is like, oh, comic books, this is cool. But I said to Tamarick, you can't, you can't read this one, buddy. This one's inappropriate for you, okay? You agree to that? Yep, I agree. We kind of hit it back in, in my room underneath a bunch of stack of books. And, and a few days go by, and we're sitting um, at dinner time, and we're, we're praying. And dur- during our, our, our supper time prayer, Tamric he starts crying. 
And I'm like, this is a really moving prayer that I'm giving here. This is great. And, and we get done with the prayer, and, and Marshall, and like, hey, T, what's wrong? And all he says, I read the book. I read the book. And my response, right, if it's my view of like, this is who God is, then eternally disappointed. I was so tender. Marshall was so tender towards Tamar. This is a gift that he would be convicted to confess. And then what do mom and dad do? It's okay. We confess and there's forgiveness. It's all right. But let's talk about what you saw. Right? And this is us. I mean, we're very fallible parents. And this is the God of the universe who is like abundant in mercy and grace and compassion and tenderness for his children. So, God, in his mercy, in his grace, he forgives. And as I said, his Racham, he deals with our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions. This iniquity, this Avon. God forgives people by taking responsibility for their own, their iniquity. The prophet Isaiah writes of God's servant who will embody God's forgiving love by carrying the avon, the iniquity of many, and allowing that iniquity to crush him. Isaiah 53. He will absorb humanity's crookedness, letting it overwhelm and destroy him. But then we say that's not the end of the story of the suffering servant. The servant will emerge out on the other side of death alive and well, so he can offer that new life to others. And the New Testament writers insist that this servant is Jesus. And they use this word anomia. Anomia, similar to the word avon, the Hebrew word avon, which we translate as iniquity in the Greek New Testament. And Paul writes, our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, gave his life on our behalf in order to redeem us from our anomia, our crooked behavior, our iniquity. So we confess. It's a gift. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us. Katharia, catharsis. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Clean. Those places that we can't get to with soap and water, God gets to through Jesus. We're counted as clean. We do this through confession. And we did this together a few moments ago. And we do this continually. We approach our gracious, loving, merciful God and trust that he will not only forgive us in the future, but, but now, today, for everything that I've done, all of my sin and shame and guilt, transgressions and iniquity. Now, this calls for us to be a humble people before God. So when you get to that point of confession, it shouldn't be, I hope, I mean, we're sad because of our sin, transgression, and iniquity, but it's like, God, this is why you give us this idea of confession. We can go to you collectively and individually all the time. Sometimes it feels like that, that I can go and not feel guilt, not be weighed down, not be burdened, but be cleansed, that catharsis, release. No, I release it. Jesus, you took my sin. You died for me. You love me. Let, let's keep going here, verses four through six. Now, when I, when I read this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may ju be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Like, that, that's David here um, acknowledging, yeah, it's, it's me, I did it, it's on me. My, my fault, my bad. 
I'm oftentimes amazed at my ability to deny, to be it wasn't really me. It was, it was kind of, I was, you know, I was forced into this and, you know, it was just a, it was just a little mistake. So kind of that kind of trying to ameliorate what, what I've done. It's not really my fault or it may, I think more likely trying to justify why I do what I do. And this happens, it seems like always in the car. Um, that idiot shouldn't be on the road and I, I let loose some invectives and, and like, no, that, that, that's not it. That's, it's sin. It's not it's not righteous anger. That's unrighteous anger. That's sin, man. Um, I need to confess that. So th- I think there, that's on one hand we, we experience. Maybe you experience that. Try to um, defend yourself, justify yourself. Say it's not that big a deal. But I think this is where a lot of us fall um, to another extreme. A tendency to resort to immense self-loathing. In those moments when I've done something wrong, usually something pretty serious, made a mess of things. There's a story that I tell myself. Um, I'm horrible. A disaster. A sorry excuse for a human being. Unlovable. Irredeemable. Deserving of nothing good. Now, that, that may be a little bit harsh. And even, we could say, not entirely untrue, but ultimately not particularly healthy, and certainly not where we stay. So we have these two poles, avoidance, denial, self-justification on the one hand, or self-loathing, I'm a miserable worm on the other. My, my thesis, I think through this text, is that neither of those are really very honest. The one is a lie in regard to the facts, the other is a lie in regard to the conclusion. And the psalmist, though, I think we have to deal with this, goes in this direction we might not have anticipated, owning it, like, yeah, it's me, and I've sinned against you, God, but he he writes this, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, in verse 4. We say, wait a tick. If we accept that this is King David's prayer to God after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah murdered, I would say that his sin is decidedly against them. If I've been unfaithful to my wife, I've sinned against her. If I've cheated on an exam, I've, cheated, I, I've sinned against my teacher or my classmates. If I've called someone a terrible name, I've sinned against the object of my insult, right? So why bring God into this? And I think this is really where we're at culturally today. Um, a Dartmouth philosophy professor by the name of Walter Sinnott Armstrong wrote a book called Morality Without God. And it's sort of the same story you've probably heard. If you've heard of people like Sam Harris, um, kind of the same concept. The argument that objective morality exists, great, and we can determine right and wrong without God, not so great. Why is that? Well, because it begs the question, where does morality come from? Nietzsche, the German philosopher, understood perfectly well that if God is dead, then all bets are off. Morality is only what I determine for myself. And we can say, what gives you the basis to say your morality trumps mine? I mean, we're talking about postmodernism writ large, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault. And, and what we're left with is something is going to fill the void, right? Nietzsche's Ubermensch or Huxley's Fordship or Wells' Big Brother. Who gets to determine what's just and moral? Is it me? Is it big tech? Is it the New York Times? The Bible insists that the only one who has the authority to determine right, wrong, good, evil, is God. 
He's blameless, perfectly righteous, the only good arbiter of judgment, and God alone. And, and therefore, we say, well, then all sin is against God. David surely sinned against, against Bathsheba and Uriah. And, I, and we would say the command to love our neighbor sums up the command to not commit adultery, to not murder, to not steal, to not covet. But when Nathan confronted David about the entire horrible episode, what does Nathan say? You have utterly scorned the Lord. And how does David respond? I have sinned against the Lord. Despising or oppressing others is first a sin against God. Proverbs 14, those who oppress the poor insult their maker. You could look at Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, that a lying to others is sinning against God. Jesus said a failure to love and serve others is a failure to love and serve God, serve God himself in Matthew 25. But why? Why do we say all sin is against God? When I was a kid growing up, watching the nightly news, not like intentionally or anything, but it was just on, and being really troubled when I would see a crowd, crowds of people in a country that um, hated the United States burning an American flag, and it's just like, does something to you. It's like, that, that's not right. And, and, and well, that makes sense. The, the flag represented the United States, and, and the message was in this burning of the flag, we want you destroyed. So the idea is when we sin against another human being, we're in essence burning God in effigy because we're his image bearers. You hurt God, you hurt one of God's creation, you're hurting him. So there's a Godward direction to every sin. And because all sin is against God, all sin is infinitely serious. So that's not good. It doesn't appear to get much better in verse 5. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. And we can pick our image here. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Poison poured into the water at the head of a river carries it forever downstream. Real quick story. Fiji, 2019. Um, there was a stream that would go through these villages in, in Fiji. And they had a bit of a ri revival in the early 2000s. And... Um, there was toxicity in the water and it would go downstream and the, the government would test the water and it was like, no, levels of toxicity are so bad that you can't drink it. And all the people that, that lived along the stream were affected by that. So uh, this revival is happening and there was a group of people that said, we're going to pray in this little village along the stream, about midstream, we're going to pray over our village. God, have mercy on us, bless us, forgive us. And, and would you, Lord, provide for us? We don't want to travel, you know, five miles to get water. And so they do. An amazing thing happens. The government came out then, weeks later. They tested upstream, village. That's yeah, still toxic. You can't drink this. Tested downstream, still toxic. You can't drink, drink this. In the village midstream where they had been praying for God's grace, it's clean. It's clean. Now, that's miraculous. And, and you may be skeptical, <laughs> but that's the story of us. Yes, I've been poisoned because of my first parents and because of my own volitional sin, but God in his mercy miraculously comes in. Jesus Christ takes my sin, takes the punishment for it. I receive forgiveness, sonship, daughtership. I am counted clean. It's a work of God's grace and it's miraculous. God does this. 
And if it wasn't for God's work, we would be left with that self-loathing and despair. God breaks in. He breaks the chain. He said, now you are counted clean in Christ Jesus. The psalmist prays, you desire truth in the inward being. Teach me wisdom. This is the expectation that God can do something about my sin. That if it's against God that I've sinned, then God alone can blot out, wash, and cleanse me miraculously of my sin. So we defer to God's steadfast love, his mercy. If our sin is infinitely serious, then God's infinite grace is needed to heal us. That's what we need to know, friends. We need to know there is one who cleanses us. And if you are in Christ Jesus through faith, you are counted as clean. You may not feel like it. You could still feel like, man, I, I got a guilt, I got some shame. No, you're counted as righteous, dearly beloved. We read Hebrews 10 earlier. We'd keep going. We see God has perfected for all time those who are being made perfect. Now that is a dissonant sentence, right? Perfected, you are perfected now in Christ Jesus in union with him through faith. But you're still being made perfect. Like, yeah, I still see my sin and my shame and my guilt. God is doing something in you. He's convicting you. And it leads you, as you're convicted of your sin, to go to confession again. And you're forgiven again and counted as righteous. I just want to close with this. The church is often accused of being hung up on sin. I'd rather think we're simply honest about sin. At least we should be honest about sin. But what we're really hung up on is grace. Don't hate yourself. You are an image bearer, precious and important to God. But do be honest about your sin. Go to the one who can cleanse you and free you. Go with confidence to the one who can make you clean and make you whole. Let's pray together. Lord, we so desperately do need you and um, we long to, Lord, um, experience your forgiveness, to know it within the deepest part of our being, that we are counted as righteous in your sight. It's when you look at us, you see the righteousness of Jesus for those who are yours, Lord who've put their faith in him. And Father, if there's anyone here today who hasn't, Lord, received Jesus as their Savior, this one who offers such a good gift, a freeing gift, a cleansing gift, Lord God, I pray that, that there would be um, new life, Lord, that they would know who they are before you and that they would confess their sins and experience your forgiveness and your cleansing. Lord, make us whole again today. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.